All right, let's open our Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 12. This evening we return to the 12th chapter and we're looking at some just really fascinating information. This chapter is difficult in some ways because of just the sweeping scope. Uh, Thousands of years and who knows, maybe even millions of years are comprehended in this 12th chapter. Of course, depending upon the time that Jesus comes, there's just a huge gap of time stretching all the way from the beginning of the world all the way to near the end of the world that's comprehended in this 12th chapter. This chapter deals with a war between spirit beings. And that's fascinating because we've never seen anything like this. Uh, We can't see spirit beings because our eyes, uh, physical eyes, are only fit for a material world. So this is nothing like we have ever seen before. The spirit beings that we're talking about are angels. And some of them are evil, some of them are good. And they're referred to in the scriptures sometimes as stars. They're not literal stars, but... Since the scripture calls them that, we've termed this conflict between the evil and good angels, Star Wars. So there's a cosmic struggle that's going on. And that struggle is going on right at this very moment as we're speaking. Now there's coming a time, though, when that struggle is going to come to a full head and all-out war will break out. What's happening right now are just the skirmishes and things that are leading up to that. But there is coming a day when there will be an actual Star Wars. And it is going to be just beyond our belief. Now last week I covered uh, part, uh, I think, verses 1 through 6 in the chapter. So we're going to review just a little bit of that information in just a moment. And we'll start reading tonight with verse number 7. And I want to read down to verse number 13. So if you'd stand with me, please. We'll look at uh, this beginning in verse number 7. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, And his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, just thank you that we're able to be here tonight. And as the songs that we have sung, we stand in awe of you. And as we look in this text in Revelation chapter 12, surely we do have to stand in awe of you because the things that we are discussed, we discuss are so far above us. There's no way that we can really understand all of this. And there's such a huge gap between us and that spiritual world and you yourself. So just, Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes of understanding this evening and help us to learn something from your word. Bless our people through this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 12 is 
John's vision of that great war that's coming in the future. Now this chapter, though, begins with a look at the past. It begins with a look at all the attempts that Satan has made to try and stop the coming of Christ into the world. The Bible is given to us to reveal God's redemptive purposes. That redemption comes through Jesus Christ. And the one thing that Satan has sought to prevent throughout all the history of the world up until the time, of course, that Christ did come was to prevent that coming. Now, the Redeemer, of course, is Christ. And since the dawn of time, Satan has done everything he could to overthrow God's purpose and to overthrow God himself. Satan is the arch nemesis of God, but he didn't begin that way. Uh, Satan wasn't created evil. Uh, He's not eternal as God is eternal, so he was created. He's a created being. And when he was created as an angel, he was nothing like the way that we know him now. In our discussion last week, we started with the regalia of Satan. And we talked about how that Satan was created. Originally, he was not known as Satan. The name means adversary, and he wasn't an adversary in the beginning, but he was Lucifer. He was the morning star, and he was really one of the brightest and the best of all of God's morning stars, the angels. He had power and prestige that was unequaled by any of the angels, perhaps except for one that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. But he was created and he was given power and great beauty. He was given great acclaim and a beautiful appearance. But somehow, and we don't know exactly how this happened, but Satan decided by looking at all that power and prestige that he had, the beauty, the acclaim that God had given him, and so he became very prideful. And in his pride, he wanted to exalt himself above God. And he felt like it was too much beneath him to be uh, just a creature of God and to serve God, but he wanted to be the one who was very God himself of this entire universe. And so, as the Scripture says, he tried to exalt himself above the throne of God, and then he would become the supreme ruler of all. Well, when he thought that way, that led to the rebellion of Satan. Satan's arrogance went into action, and so there was a rebellion in heaven. Now, verse 4 of this text is an indication that one-third of all the angels that were created joined in that rebellion when Satan tried to overthrow God. Now, those angels sinned when they stood against God, and since that time, they have been forever confirmed in their disobedience. God has made no allowance for them to return. And so, if we wanted to use the terminology of Star Wars, we could say they can never pass from the dark side back to where they are in the good graces of God. So, God condemned them, and he condemned all of them, and some of them, but not all of them, he uh, immediately imprisoned. Now, some were immediately locked down in hell, and they've been there since the very beginning. But others have still allowed to roam free. God has allowed them to roam free. And these are the demons. There are just probably billions upon billions of those demons who are those evil angels that fell when Satan fell. And now they go about throughout the entire world doing Satan's bidding. And they're the ones that are going to be involved in this great angelic war. Now, thirdly, as we look at what's coming in the future, we need to understand the region of Satan. Where is Satan? And that's one of the greatest misunderstandings that people have about him. Where is he right now? Where does he live? Where's he gone to? And some people think that Satan is in hell. 
And they believe that he's the keeper of hell, that he has headquarters there. And what Satan does, he has a war room there, and there he makes all of his plans, and he schemes and does all that he's going to do. And then whenever he wants to, he calls up uh, evil angels out of the garrison that he keeps in hell, and they come out to afflict God's people. Well, what we say about that is that is a fairy tale idea. It's a Hollywood idea. It's not the idea of the Bible. It's a cartoonish idea. But unfortunately, it is the idea of some people's religion. That's what they really believe. Satan is control, in control of hell. He's the keeper. It's his domain. But the truth of the matter is that hell was created by God. God controls hell. God sends men and angels to hell. And Satan does not have the power to cast even one single person into hell. And so Satan is not in hell now. He's never been there. He doesn't want to go there because hell is not his domain. So hell then is a place that's created by God and Satan doesn't have any power over it. So then where is Satan? He's not in hell. So where is he? Well, I can't give you his hometown. Um... Katati, maybe. I don't know. It's, uh, it might be. But the Bible does make kind of an interesting reference to this. If you look back in chapter 2, uh, Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamos, and he says something that's very interesting. In Revelation 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And the word seat there is the Greek word thronos, the same word from which we get thrown. So he says, I know thy works and where you dwell, even where Satan's throne is. And so there are some people who believe that that was a reference to the literal throne of Satan. There in the city of Pergamos, amongst all those heathen temples that were built, that Satan had a throne. Now, of course, he couldn't be seen because he's a spirit being, but there's some who interpret it that way, that that was the place where Satan's throne was. Well, we know it's not there now because that city has been destroyed and all of the temples that were there are gone. And so I don't know if that was metaphorically speaking or if it really was a throne of Satan, but I do know this, he's not there right now. But we do have an indication in chapter 12 of where Satan is or at least where he can go. So let's look at, first of all, his access. Where can Satan go? Now, verses 7 and 8 says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Now, verse number 8 indicates that up until the time that this war takes place in heaven, that Satan has access to heaven itself. Now, we read in verse number 4 about the fall of Satan. Now, that's talking about a different time. And in that time, when Satan fell, he lost his position in heaven, but he didn't lose his access. Now, if you remember the position that Satan has, what well, he was the anointed cherub that covered. He was the one that guarded the throne of God. But when he fell, when he sinned against God, he lost that position. But he didn't lose his access. And so he's still able to go into heaven. If you remember in the book of Job, there is a time there that's described where uh, Satan appeared with the other sons of God, the angels of God, and he was in God's presence. And it was at that time that, that Satan got that permission to afflict Job and try to tempt him to deny God. And so we see right there that even after the fall, that Satan did have access to the presence of God. Now, I remember... 
I, some time ago, we had a question in form class about Satan's ability to go into heaven. And I believe the question was this. How does Satan get into heaven when he's sinful and there is no sin in heaven? Now, that's a really good question. But I think that we have to get our point of reference correct. We kind of have to climb through that just a little bit and recognize that there was at least one sin in heaven. And really, there were multiple sins in heaven. When Satan, when Lucifer fell, he sinned against God. So that was a sin that was committed in heaven. Then all of those billions or how many numbers of angels that fell with him, they also sinned. So all those sins were committed in heaven. So how do we say that there is no sin in heaven? How do we teach that? Well, again, we have to get the point of reference correct. At the present time, God does not allow the commission of sin in heaven. All of the holy creatures that are there now, all of the angels of God have been confirmed in their holiness. They can't sin. All of the people that have died and gone to heaven, they also are confirmed in holiness and they can't sin. So they're perfected. So when Satan comes into the presence of God, he accuses us. And of course that is a sin because he's a liar. He's our adversary. He's lying against us. But there's nothing that Satan does that has any effect on the inhabitants of heaven. But there is coming a time when Satan's access to heaven will be removed. He can't make any further accusations. No lies will be allowed. When we get to the end of the Revelation, we see that uh, as it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, that new Jerusalem that's coming, it says there that there's nothing that defiles, there's nothing that is an abomination, there's no lying that's permitted there. All evil has been cast down at that time. And when that happens, Satan is already in the place of his eternal uh, abode, the place where he's going to live forever, and that is in the fires of hell. But at the present time, Satan does have access to heaven. But when this war comes, and when this war is won by the holy angels of God, that ends Satan's ability to come into the presence of God. Now we notice then next, his abode. Until that war takes place, Satan has pretty much access to any place in the universe. So, he can go just about anywhere that he wants to go. Now, he doesn't go to hell. He doesn't want to go there. But he goes anywhere that he wants to go on earth. And he goes anywhere among the heavens. But Satan is not an omnipresent being. He's not an eternal being. He's not a a person that can be in more than one place at one time. And so all of the evil activity that goes on in the world comes at the bequest of Satan, but it's not Satan's actual work himself. He's not the one who is actually, for the most part, tempting you. I, I've talked about this before. It's, it's very doubtful that there's anybody here who's ever been personally tempted by Satan. He's got bigger fish to fry than us. And so he has all of his demons that do afflict us, and they're doing Satan's work. There are literally billions of them that are out there. So Satan appears to be ubiquitous because his will is being done by those evil angels. But when the war is over, here's what happens to Satan. He gets cast down to the earth. Now look at verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, And his angels were cast out with him. Now, do you realize what that means? Satan's access at that time is limited to all these other places. He can't go there anymore. And so now, at that particular time, all of these angels, those billions of evil angels, they're restricted to the earth. They're going to be in our neighborhoods. 
I've already got some living in my neighborhood, and I know how bad that's going to be. But there's going to be literally billions of those, of those evil angels all over the place. Now that brings a huge problem for everybody on this planet, because next there is his awareness. Finally, throughout all of these centuries of time, Satan is going to get the picture. Now look at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Now here it seems that the devil becomes aware for the very first time that the end is near. He has just a short time left. Now I'll explain in a few minutes when we get to the fourth part of it, what part of this, why he's finally convinced. I mean, he's held out hope uh, uh, all of this time that he could overcome God eventually. But until the war in heaven, or when this war in heaven takes place, and the cause for that war happens, then he's going to realize that he doesn't have very much time left. And the reason why he comes to that realization is very important uh, to the whole story that we have here. So finally, he is aware that the end is near. He sees that what's written in the back of the book really will come true. Now, that's despite, you know, all these years that Satan has been able to read the Bible. It's been here. He knows what it says, but he never believed that it could actually come true, that he would have a downfall. And so he's consistently working against God, thinking that he can't overthrow him. I'm here preaching to you tonight and telling you all about what's going to happen, but Satan simply does not believe it. He doesn't believe it, even though God has never missed even one single prophecy coming true when it's supposed to come true. He's self-deluded. But when Satan finally realizes it, that's when he unleashes his worst fury. The Scripture says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. That great wrath is what takes place during the tribulation period. And the greatest part of it, the worst part of it, occurs in the second half of the tribulation. And that's where Satan becomes so angry that he puts his power behind the Antichrist and he pours out everything that he has to wreak as much havoc as possible upon this earth. Now next then, we see his activity. Verse 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And if you go on reading down to the end of the chapter, it's all about his activity. Satan turns his full attention to one group of people, and that is the nation of Israel. He's been persecuting her for centuries because they're the chosen people of God. And this is his very last opportunity. He's going to afflict these chosen people of God because he does not want them to enter into their kingdom. God has promised that there, would, there is a kingdom that's coming. And this is Satan's last attempt to stop that coming kingdom. Now, in part number three of the sermon, we're going to come back to that particular uh, piece of this, and we'll talk about the results of the war. But I want to finish up with this tonight. Number four is the removal of Satan. This is the war itself. Now, that first statement in verse 7 is really a mind-boggling statement. We can read that, we can try to imagine it, but we can really never do justice in our imaginations or our explanations of what that's really going to be like. It says, and there was war in heaven. A war in heaven. Now these are spirit beings. They're angels. They don't fight with physical weapons. They fight in a way that's unknown to us. And there's no science fiction movie that's ever been made that could do justice to this. 
They're not aliens with lightsabers and photon bonds and bombs and such things. These are spirit beings. And the outcome of this warfare has serious consequences on the world and eternity. Now, let's look at it again. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. Now, remember, the dragon, that refers to Satan. And prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. There we have the adversaries in this war. Now, Satan, we know a lot about him. We can read a lot about him. We know where he came from. There's a lot of scripture that's written about him. In some sense, you could say that Satan has accomplished a lot. What he tried to do was make himself famous. He wanted people to know who he is. He wanted to make himself God. He wants his name to get out there. And he's accomplished that. He's still trying to get on top of God. And when you look at the famous characters of the Bible, who has the most name recognition aside from God himself? Of course, that would be Satan. But the other character that we have here is not as well known. We don't have a whole lot of scripture about him. And and that sort of adds to the mystique in the scriptures about him. But what we do know about him is incredible. And this person is Michael. Who is he? He is the archangel. Michael is the archangel. You know, I talked a lot about Michael when we were uh, discussing chapter 10. And I told you that... In chapter 10, that angel that's there, I believe, is Michael. He's a mighty, powerful angel. And despite all the assumptions, despite all the legends about him, Michael is the only archangel that's mentioned in the Bible. He's a very special angel. His name means one like God. Now, I'm of the opinion that Michael is the actual counterpart of Satan. Jesus is not the counterpart of Satan. Despite what the Mormons teach, you know, they believe that that uh, Jesus is Satan's brother. Well, that's not true. Satan is not a counterpart of Jesus. Satan is a created being. Jesus is the eternal God. Michael is also a created being. He's an angel. And most likely, he has at least equal power to Satan. He chose to remain with God. He didn't, he didn't fall when, when Satan fell. He didn't join in that rebellion. But he has all of this power, but all of that is subject to God's will. And he only uses his power as God allows him to. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now let's get the next blank on your listening sheet, and then we'll go on from there. The next is the army. The army. Michael is the commander of the angelic army. Of course, Christ is the supreme allied commander, but he's delegated this authority to Michael. He's given authority to command these angels in this cosmic battle. The angels that he commands are, of course, the holy angels. They're the elect angels of God that didn't fall. So the elect holy angels have been forever confirmed in their holiness, and so they're just waiting for this time to take place, and when they're called up, they're going to do battle. Verse 7 says, And there was war in heaven. The construction of that sentence is kind of interesting in the original language because the way that it's construed here is that Michael and his angels did not start the war. They were drawn into the war. So Satan starts the whole thing and Michael uh, begins to fight because he has to make a defense. And what Satan is doing here, he's making his last power play. 
Michael has to put up a defense because Satan is now moving into action to make his final attempt against God. And so what Satan does, he draws a line in the sand and he throws everything in. And from here on out, at this point, it's all or it's nothing. Why does Satan do that? I mean, why this particular time? Why does he draw the angels into the warfare? Well, we have some insight into that, perhaps, in the book of Jude. If you want to turn back a few pages to Jude, of course, that's the book that comes just before Revelation. And you'll see this in verse number 9. Jude, verse number 9. It says here, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. What that tells us is that Satan tried to draw Michael into a fight before. I mean, he tried to get Michael into a battle before, but the timing wasn't right. And so Michael wasn't permitted to fight Satan at that time. There was some kind of a dispute that was going on, and here it says that they were arguing about the body of Moses. Now, there's a lot of speculation about that why, that, uh, why that Satan would want the body of Moses. Some think that he wanted to set it up as an idol. He knew that the uh, Israelites, they revered Moses, and so if he could take the body of Moses and he could make that an idol, then the people of God, Israel, would bow down and they would worship that idol, and thus they would break God's commandments. Now, interestingly enough, when Jesus came, that's almost what Israel was doing. I mean, they were practically worshiping Moses because what they really tried to do was to pit the law of Moses against Jesus. And they tried to tear Jesus down through the law. So it might be. I mean, that could be a case that that Satan wanted the body of Moses for idolatry. But there's another reason. I think a very interesting reason that's proposed. Why did he want the body? Well, I think that he wanted it for what it represents to God's elect people. Do you remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? That was when Peter, James, and John were allowed to see the glory of God. They had got a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. Who was it that appeared with Jesus? It was Moses and Elijah. So it might be that what Satan wanted the body of Moses for was that he could stop the resurrection of Moses' body. Now, what he wanted to do was to overthrow God's eternal purposes. The resurrection of life is the, is the very thing that gives hope to us as believers. And if the devil can stop the resurrection, then God is defeated. So that might be a clue as to why the devil finally draws that line in the sand. He, he takes his stand. So what event would cause Satan to jump to his feet and all of a sudden assemble all this army to do battle? Well, some have surmised that this that Satan wants to stop what will be the final act of his defeat. He has to stop the one event that shows God's purpose has finally been accomplished. Now, I'm going to leave you in the dark for just a moment about what that is. You may have already guessed. But let's think about this a moment. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. There was a great promise that was made there. And the promise is that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. All of the rest of the Bible is the development of that theme. That's what we call redemption. It's all about redemption, how that Christ would crush Satan and accomplish our final redemption. So redemption is the key to this. And all the efforts throughout the centuries were to stop redemption. That's what Satan was doing. And he was trying to keep the curse from being lifted from the world. And Satan started that by trying to destroy the line of Judah. 
And we talked about that in the beginning of the chapter. The multiple attempts that there were to kill the heir to the Davidic throne. And if that was possible, then that would stop Christ from being born. Well, those attempts were unsuccessful. And then when Jesus was born, who was there? There was Herod, and he was standing there to try to prevent Jesus from being able to grow up. And so there was that slaughter of the infants. And so Herod killed all of these babies that were surrounding Jerusalem in order to destroy Christ. But that was unsuccessful. And then throughout Christ's ministry, there was all of those attempts to try to kill him before he went to the cross. But those were unsuccessful. Finally, Jesus did go to the cross. And Satan thought that perhaps he'd won a victory there. And so what did he do? He tried to keep Jesus from coming out of the tomb. But coming out of the grave is exactly what Jesus did. He arose from the tomb... And so Satan, since he couldn't stop that, decided to spread all the lies about it, how it couldn't possibly have happened. And so Satan has these multiple attempts, and yet here we are every Sunday morning celebrating the resurrection of Christ. So what's next? Well, the very last thing that Satan can do is to stop that final act of redemption by one thing. He can't stop, he didn't stop Christ at his resurrection. He hasn't been able to keep God's elect from believing in Christ. And thank the Lord for that. Uh, The Holy Spirit is stronger than the devil. And he's able to take off the blinders that Satan puts on our eyes. Christ overcomes our natural depravity and the resistance that we have to the gospel. So the devil can't stop all of that. God saves his elect according to his eternal purposes. So what's next? Well, the thing that we're waiting on is the rapture. Satan's last gasp is to stop the rapture. You see, that's where all the history of the world is headed. That's where everything is going to. That's the focal point. And if we get to the rapture, if that takes place, that one event, then Satan is going to be defeated. Now, up until that time, Satan has all of his dirty work that he can do. But when the rapture occurs, there comes the guarantee that everything has to wind down. Now, it's worth thinking about, it's just possible, that just before Christ comes again, that this war is going to take place. Satan will step forward to engage Michael and all the angelic armies, and he'll try to stop Christ from raising his people from the dead and translating the living saints. And so if he can stop that one event, it means that redemption has failed. Now, let's go over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to see how important that this is. As preachers of the gospel, we spend a lot of time talking about the resurrection because that is supremely important to us. You stop the resurrection, and you stop redemption. Stop it, and Christ does not reign. That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 22. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die... Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, and he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, you see there, the last enemy that must be destroyed, the one that Christ must conquer, is death. And if Christ does not destroy death, then he can't continue to reign. If he can't conquer death, then the whole plan and purpose of God comes crashing down. So if there is no resurrection, what happens? 
Death is one. Death and hell have one. Now let's go down to verse number 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So in this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when is death defeated? It's when the corruptible puts on incorruption. When does that happen? Well, it's when your body comes out of the grave. Or when, if you're living, you're translated and given a new body made like that of Christ. So you're translated into the kingdom of light. So when does all of that happen? When does it all take place? It happens at the rapture. That's when death is defeated. Now, I think that this is really fascinating stuff because what the devil is trying to do is stop the rapture. And if he doesn't stop God right there, if he doesn't defeat God at that point, then he doesn't have another chance because redemption has been finally accomplished. At that point, all that's left is the mop-up operation. And that's exactly what the tribulation is. It's the mop-up operation. Everything that takes place during the tribulation time only takes place because the first thing happened, and that is the rapture of God's people. So you see why that Satan might choose that time to engage Michael? Well, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen. And Satan doesn't know when it's going to happen either. So uh, at some point in the future, he's going to step up. Now, the thing that triggers it might be this. It might be when he's observing everything that's going on and he sees the elect angel of God step forward to blow this trumpet. And right at that moment, Satan leaps into action. He gets his armies going and he starts to try and conquer the Michael and, his ar- and, the, and the angelic army. Now, to help your understanding of that just a little bit, I want you to listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up. The great prince withstandeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Now how many references do we have in the Bible about that? The names that are written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall be shine, shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So when Michael stands up, that's when old Lucifer jumps into action. He stands up and Satan says, uh-oh, it's time to get going here. Something's about to happen. And so he draws Michael into this battle. This is the point that he's been waiting for all of this time. This is the very last attempt. Now, the Bible says that those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise. They're going to wake up. And what Satan is going to try to do is to stop that from happening. He'll try to stop them from rising victoriously over death. 
So the end of death is the destruction of Satan's kingdom. Now we think about this and we say, well, how can that happen? How could the devil ever stop the resurrection? Well, it's the whole point of why I said that it's spiritual warfare. We don't understand all these things. We don't know how this can all take place. But we do know, I think, this, that when Satan tries this, Michael and his angels swoop down like shining knights in white armor, and they enable us to get to the place where we're going. And so it might be, as we zip up through the clouds, we see warfare going on each side of us. There are the elect angels of God holding back Satan's minions, those demons that would prevent us from entering into the gates of heaven. Now, by the way, you know that that song that says, Come on, Gabriel, blow your trumpet. All the dead in Christ shall rise, or the saints in Christ shall rise. Most likely, it's not even Gabriel that blows the trumpet. Probably Michael that does that. And if it's not Michael, maybe Gabriel blows it and Michael's doing all the fighting while it's all taking place. And what those guys, are, or guys, those angels are doing, they're, they're protecting us as we go into the kingdom of God. Now, as I close this tonight, the reason I said that Satan loses this war, he's cast out of heaven, and now he knows that he has a short time. He's held out hope all of this time that he was going to overcome God. And all this time, while well, the second coming has been delayed... He's been hoping that when it comes, he would rise up and he would stop the final act of redemption. And if he could, that leaves death intact. That means that he's won out over God's eternal purpose. But when it happens, and Michael fights against him and he throws him out of heaven, then the handwriting's on the wall. Satan knows he has no more time. He's got a short time, he understands. And so he releases all that of that remaining fury upon the world. Now, that's the subject that we'll come to next time when we talk about this. But let me finish with this part of this, in this one last statement. God has promised to redeem the whole purchase possession. Now, do you know why Satan's not going to win the war? Because God has purchased us completely. He's purchased the soul, the spirit, and the body. And God is not content until he has it all. And he gets the body when he raises it from the dead. And when that happens, redemption is completely over. Now, we think about this, uh, well, I'm redeemed, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm saved. Well, absolutely you are. There's no doubt that you're going to go to heaven if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about that. But God has also made a promise that he didn't just purchase your soul, not just your spirit, but he said your body is going to be his too. That's waiting to come. The glorified body is the end of the redemption process. And so when Satan sees that he can't win out over death, when the rapture occurs and those bodies are raised incorruptible to go into the presence of God, now Satan knows the end must be near. Now we'll see a little bit later as we go on into this, we talk about the career of the Antichrist as we get into chapter 13, that even though Satan knows that the end is near, somehow he still deludes himself into thinking there might be something else that he can do. Now redemption has been accomplished. He's been totally defeated at that point. But he's going to pour out everything he can against Israel and those that have been saved during the tribulation time. And he'll try to prevent the millennial kingdom from happening. He won't be able to do it. Now, praise God for this, that if you're saved, you're not going to have to face the fury of Satan. If you're not saved, if Jesus comes back tonight, not only will you face the full fury of Satan, but more importantly, you'll face the full wrath of Almighty God. 
you'll face it, and you'll be cast into the fires of hell. So if Satan is your companion, when Jesus comes back, he'll be your companion throughout all eternity. But the good news is, you don't have to go to hell. All you have to do is trust Jesus Christ. And then, the victory is yours. You know it right now. The victory is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and the the great assurance, the promises that we receive from it. We're thankful, Lord, that you have written this all down and you told us that you'll make sure that we're victorious. No one's going to stop us from getting into heaven. No one's going to stop the resurrection of our bodies. We just thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have, for full redemption, body, soul, and spirit. So, Lord, bless as we sing uh, tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity to present your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.